Purdue Crop Chat, a regular podcast from Hoosier Ag Today and the Purdue University Extension Service, featuring Purdue Extension Corn Specialist Dr. Bob Nielsen and Extension Soybean Specialist Dr. Sean Castile. On Episode 6, an early July update on the Indiana corn and soybean crops. Could be better, could be worse is maybe the best way to describe this year's crop at the moment. On the soybean front, we're a little advanced compared to we are in the five-year average. They'll report on what they've seen in recent travels. Where I'm starting to see uh, some soybeans stressing out has been more on the field edges. So think about headlands and a lot of travel, a lot of compaction. By and large, I was reasonably impressed with the overall color of the crop, the health of the crop. I haven't seen a lot of nutrient deficiencies or at least severe nutrient deficiencies in these fields. And the value of drones for scouting your fields. Now, here's your Purdue Crop Chat host, Who's Your Ag Today's Eric Pfeiffer. Welcome into the Purdue Crop Chat Podcast. I am Eric Pfeiffer. Glad to have you along. And every so often, we like to get together with our Purdue crop experts, and we have them along with us today. Dr. Bob Nielsen, Purdue Corn Extension Specialist. Hello, Bob. Good afternoon, Eric. And we also have Sean Castile, Purdue Extension Soybean Specialist. Sean, hello. How you doing, Eric? Fantastic. And it has been a little while since we last spoke, and uh, we need to get kind of a rundown here of how things are looking across the state. Uh, Bob, I know you had some drones out here recently, and I'm sure, Sean, maybe you have as well. Let's talk a little bit about what we're seeing out there. Bob, we'll start with this corn crop. Well, let's start with uh, where it is in terms of its developmental process. And, uh, you know, we were talking here before we started recording, comparing between the crops, but... The, the corn crop is, um, if you say compare it to the last five years, but even if you look at the 10-year average on crop progress, uh, this year's crop is basically on par. Uh, you know, Monday's report indicated there was uh, something less than 10% of the crop silking, you know, on 10-year running average. That's about where we expect to be. So, you know, this would suggest that uh, the bulk of the crop will be pollinating, you uh, you know, well, it's going to get more and more beginning next week through basically the end of the month. That's going to catch probably the bulk of this year's uh, soaking on, on on the corn crop. And, you know, you compare it to last year where, you know, we didn't even hit the, the 50% mark on soaking until about the 1st of August. Well, we're going to hit it before then this year. Um, so the crop progress is about on average. Um, even though we got planted a little more timely this year, that cold may sort of slowed the crop down. And so it's, it's acting like it was planted a little bit later. Uh, if you look at the uh, crop condition ratings that USDA puts out every week, um, last Monday's report had uh, the crop at about 60% good to excellent. Again, it's about the middle of the pack. Uh, you know, last year uh, we were looking at uh, numbers that were well below 40% good to excellent. And uh, the best years in the last five, we've been as good as about 75% good to excellent. So this year we're running about in the middle of the pack. And of course, uh, we're not doing better than that uh, simply because of uh, some of those stresses we had back in May. We had that cold snap frost freeze event in the early part of May. The rest of May was frankly pretty cool. The crops slowed down, a lot of cloudy weather. Uh, some excessive rains and flooding and ponding damage. And so you throw all those together and that gives us a crop that's no better than about 60% good to excellent. So 
uh, could be better, could be worse is maybe the best way to describe this year's crop at the moment. And you mentioned that we're somewhere around average here. And I know last year we could call it certainly abnormal. 2018, abnormal as well. Is this maybe closer to normal after the past couple of weird seasons? I'll simply say it's closer to average <laughs> because I don't know what normal is anymore. But but if you just compare to the, say, the 10-year running average, we're about on par with that particular average. Sean, you've had your drones out. What do we know? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll echo kind of where we're at developmentally on the soybean front um, and, and follow it through like Bob did on the corn. We're a little advanced compared to we are in the five-year average. So um, when we go back in time here and you think of the, the May that we had, uh, we had over half our crop planted by about the 15th of May, which normally uh, it's the 21st, 22nd, something like that. So about a week ahead of a pace there. So we had some some folks get in in April and then some that got in that first week of May, even with the cold freeze that we we're talking about. And uh, that just has, has maintained. And so as we've, we've gone through the season, we've had, you know, 75% of the crops emerged by June 7th. And, you know, as of last week, 90% has been emerged. And, and so development has been ahead of pace and it's just been maintaining about a week ahead of, of that normal pace, or I should say <laughs> what if normal is, but the five-year average. And we've come into blooming as the 4th of July weekend came in. We're about a quarter of the, the crops, about 26% was blooming. And, you know, saying that Grandpa always uh, said about corn, Bob, you know, knee-high by the 4th of July, and everyone's been talking about that. And I'd I'd switched it on the soybean front that I want soybeans green to die by the 4th of July. And, and the idea that I want the canopy closed by the 4th of July in the hopes that we're flowering out the top. So developmentally, uh, about the quarter of the crops, probably where I'd like it to be. Um, that's not to say that we're behind by any means. Um, just, I think that we could have even better crop if we were a little more advanced in a five-year comparison though, we are advanced. We're that seven, 10 day ahead of schedule. And I anticipate looking at the way it's tracking and earlier development by the end of this week. Uh, and when next week's report comes out, we'll probably have half the state that's going to be, uh, blooming. So that's flower anywhere on the main stem and, and even trying to, you know, schedule out a little bit how we're getting to what's more critical for the soybeans in terms of water use and water needs is getting into pod development. And so my rough guess is that we're probably another 10 to 14 days out to having the crop pod at a quarter of the state. And so if you want to go out to the 50% of the state, uh, probably by the the end of July, uh, we'll have about 50% of the state uh, potting. And so at that point is where I really start to have some uh, issues or at least make sure that we're in a state where we've got good water supply, even with extreme temperatures. But if we have good water supply, good rooting, uh, we're, we're doing pretty well. Uh, when you look at the, the ratings, how good or bad the crop is, uh, we're right in that same ballpark of what Bob talked about, you know, good to excellent. Uh, we're about 60% right now, which uh, is, is pretty good considering the year that we've had heat's been there, but we've, we've caught some of these popcorn showers here and there. Um, Bob, I don't know if it, it's caught everything, but do you think you've got some areas that might need it more than others? Well, we always do. And it, uh, it's hard for me to, to really tell at the moment where these areas are. It's going to be hit or miss. I mean, even locally, think about it, that, that uh, uh, just in the last couple of days, you know, south of town across the river, uh, you know, got upwards of an inch of rain. And this side of the river, we got nothing. So it's, it's going to be hit or miss. But certainly there are areas that are still 
extremely dry areas that when we get these uh, sunny, hot days like we've had recent, that corn's rolling. But there's also just as many areas around the state that have had, thankfully, a half inch here, an inch there, uh, enough to to sort of hold off that that drought effect a little bit. So, you know, that's why I'm I'm, I'm much more hopeful today than I was roughly two weeks ago when we saw the prospects of this heat coming. In fact, it was beginning to come. The corn was beginning to roll pretty good. And, and two weeks ago, I was really getting nervous about what the following two weeks were going to be because the forecast for rain wasn't that good at that point in time. But there was that week where quite a bit of the state got respectable rainfall, enough that it, it certainly gave the corn, uh, well, probably gave both crops some breathing room uh, to help tolerate some of this, uh, I, won't, I guess we could say unusual heat. We haven't had this many days of 90s, probably for quite some time. And so it is a bit unusual well, what we're experiencing this year on the heat. And, and except for maybe the past few days, it's been a reasonably dry heat. You know, the, the early on when we were getting those 90 degree days, it was pretty dry humidity. And right. of course, that's when that crop really transpires a lot, uses a lot of water per day. And, and that's, that's what was scaring me two weeks ago. I'm just not as nervous today uh, since we continue. Even today, storms have been rumbling around the neighborhood and, and, and you know, there's rain around the state. It's not widespread rain, but you keep your fingers crossed and, and hope that, you know, over a couple of weeks time, maybe everybody will get a little bit of rain and that's going to help us a lot. So as I've been driving around looking at, at both crops and seems to me that the fields of corn that I, I said look a little stressed, they're further delayed in development or just a later planning, right? And so would you anticipate you, you see the same kind of thing? I'm assuming it's going to root development or even some of the, the poor conditions when those got planted so they don't have access to soil moisture down deeper. And those are the ones that I see kind of pineappling more, even though their water use is probably not as high as the other fields that are close to tasseling now. Well, I, you know, there was during May a lot of excessive rain <clears throat> around the state and uh, enough that I think that was really stressing that initial root development. And so I think those fields, particularly the rooting is probably not as deep as, as one would like it to be. Um, there was compaction this year. Uh, some of the planting was done wet. So there was planter uh, compaction in the furrow that restricted root development. But by and large, especially compared to last year, I don't think we've had near the extent of soil compaction created uh, pre-season or pre-planting or during during planting. So my sense is that the, the crop is probably reasonably well-rooted this year. Um, and I, I think that's going to help us uh, also get through uh, the rest of the summer uh, better than it otherwise would. So, you know, like I say, as I've, as I've driven around uh, and I haven't, I guess I've been more uh, central and north in the past couple of weeks than I have farther south. But although I guess I was down at our southeast Purdue farm uh, last week, um, I was struck by the fact that uh, certainly there's a lot of variability on, on planting date and size of the crop. But by and large, I was reasonably impressed with the overall color of the crop, the health of the crop. I haven't seen a lot of nutrient deficiencies or at least severe nutrient deficiencies in these fields. And knock on wood, up to this point, I think uh, foliar diseases are relatively minimal at this point, too. So 
I, I'm again, I, maybe I'm thinking the last year or, or the other previous really stressed out years, but, but, you know, I feel reasonably good with the crop at, at this point in time. And I was teasing Sean before we started recording, whether he had a yield estimate or not. And, and of course, one of the things both of us use are crop condition ratings, and it's a bit early to be using crop condition ratings, but with a 60% good to excellent crop, if we could maintain that for the rest of the season, and we'd be looking at easily trend yield, if not slightly above on, on the corn side. And, you know, compared to last year, that would certainly be welcome news to, to a lot of people to be trend or slightly above trend. So, you know, time will tell obviously what that'll, uh, how that will turn out. But again, I'm, I'm just, I'm really pleased with the crop in general. I'm pleased with my own field scale trials around the state. Almost all of them look pretty good. So, so I feel pretty good at this point. Well, I'll uh, I'll switch on the, the soybean side. So as I've been traveling, looking at these fields and seeing some of the offset, seeing the the fields that are stressing out, they're not field all, the whole field, right? There's just spots. So it's similar what you're talking about, probably the conditions of when they were planted, uh, root development, those kind of issues, even issues with the, probably the past seasons of compaction. So where I'm starting to see. Uh, some soybean stressing out has been more on the field edges. So think about headlands and a lot of travel, a lot of compaction, uh, limited root development. And, and in, in those, it's not just water, uh, access to water, but it's access to the nutrients that's moved by that water. And so I've been noticing potassium deficiency showing up on fields. And that's, that's a nutrient that moves by mass flow, even with soil test levels that are adequate or even above uh, critical levels, but if they don't have water to move it, so whether whether that's the fields dried out, like we talked about hot dry, or we've got limited root development, and that's more than than anything else of what I've been seeing, some level of stress on the root development where we've had that that margin of the the leaves showing the yellow and even necrotic, um, but it's not field widespread. It's those headland spaces, it's low spots that had a little issues with at planting. Uh, so that's probably the, the main thing I've been seeing pop up and it's not widespread, but it has been some folks said yellow flashing. It's it's not really flashing per se, but is, you know, go out, take a look at them, dig up those plants to see what the roots are looking like, see if that soil is hard, which it may be if they haven't caught the popcorn shower. So it might have to right. wait until after the popcorn shower to really right. dig into those. Right. Well, and, and I, from the corn perspective, I, if, if I were to fear monger or, or worry, when I look at the six to 10 day uh, weather outlook from National Weather Service or, and also the eight to 14 day, um, the, the prospects for this excessive heat to continue are pretty good. And given that the bulk of the crop in this state, corn crop is going to be pollinating uh, during the remainder of this month, and we're looking at excessive temperatures for at least the next uh, two weeks, that's where if I if I'm going to worry, it's going to be the next couple of weeks as to how severe those temperatures may be. And when you look at the precipitation forecasts uh, for the next seven days, it doesn't look good at all for for widespread precipitation. And the eight to 14 day, the second week out is sort of equal chances for any decent precipitation. So, you know, you, you couple in sort of mediocre forecasts for precipitation over the next two weeks and a pretty good prospects for a high temperatures and a corn crop that is going to come full into pollination over the next two or three weeks, that does get a little concerning. And, and, uh, you know, but again, time will tell as to whether it becomes a factor or not. 
Well, Bob, with that, you know, temperature is one thing, uh, high temperatures. And, and when I think it on the soybean front, it, in most cases, if I have access to moisture, transpiration, I, that plant can cool, right? We have the, the modified growing degree units for, for corn. We kind of use it pseudo for soybeans. It's got a cap of 86 degrees for a reason, right? This is kind of how far does some of these plant processes go before they kind of stale out or don't do anything else. Are you concerned with any of the, the low 90s that are coming without with rain? So we got access to soil moisture at the, the low 90s and whatever nighttime temps that you want to kind of throw in there. Um, I think we both could probably say, okay, high temps, no rain. Okay, that's not a good situation. So what about the high, higher temps with adequate soil moisture? If the soil moisture is adequate, um, then temperatures in the low to mid 90s, while they're not, let's say, desirable, it's not necessarily stressful as long as there's sufficient soil moisture and the roots are able to, to access it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's why in the up uh, for the past week or two, uh, now that we've begun to get some rains, that's why I said earlier that I feel better today than I did two weeks ago, because the crop, frankly, in the past week, in the areas that have had rain, and even though it's been in the mid-90s, and I've been out last week and more than this week flying drones, uh, but on those really hot days last week where it was in the mid-90s, I didn't see a lot of visible stress on that corn crop, but it's because it had adequate moisture. So you're exactly right. As long as we can keep getting these, whether it's the, the popcorn storms or a little more widespread, if we can capture some of this rain uh, during the next couple of weeks, we can tolerate low to mid 90s. And I don't know that anyone's really forecasting 100 plus degree temperatures. So, yeah. you know, we're talking, you know, mid to, to or mid to or low to mid 90s, possibly. And, and so those fields that have adequate moisture, it's not it certainly isn't desirable, but it's not going to shave a, a lot of bushels off the top and it and won't have a huge impact on pollination, I don't think. It's only those areas that are still dry, excessively right. dry, and get hit with low to mid-90s. Yes, that, that's where the risk is. Yeah, I, I go back to uh, a few years ago, uh, 2012 drought, right? We went down to Posey County about this time exactly, I think July 5th is when we were down there and yeah. we had our thermal guns and we we're yeah. shooting the soil, shooting the asphalt is same 135 degrees, shooting you, right? <laughs> Air temperature, I think it was right at 9,900 degrees yeah. and we were near irrigated fields and, and, and then those that had compaction, those that didn't. And it's just the beauty of both these crops when they had access to water, right? So I remember going oh, yeah. into the cornfield and the corners without the irrigation, Ear leaf was what, 120, 125 degrees, right? Yeah. Obviously a little more advanced than some of the plants we're talking about today. But then those that were in the irrigated areas, they were running right at that, you know, 90, 85 oh, degrees, yeah. whatever it was. Right. As long as that plant can transpire, it's going to cool down. And and that's that's what gets it through these tough times. So again, I think that's the unknown over the next couple of weeks, given this forecast is, you know, how many areas, uh, how many fields have sufficient moisture, how many don't. And, uh, you know, we'll have a lot better feel come the first of August as to you know what the corn crop's looking at. Whereas soybean crop again, the beauty of that soybean crop is it flowers what forever. <laughs> it <laughs> can. flowers a long time. It can. Whereas, yeah. Whereas a, an individual cornfield, you have maybe a week tops to get it all pollinated. Whereas an individual soybean field, how long, Sean? You're, you're six to eight weeks easy on a soybean crop, and you know four to six is probably a good. Norm. 
a year like 2012 when we were stressed, I mean, it was seven, eight, nine, ten weeks because they're aboarding those flowers. You know, we normally abort probably 75% of the flowers that a soybean plant makes and still yield really well. And so that's limited investment. We abort those great. Uh, so then we can have an opportunity for pod development later. When we really get hit is when that stress comes in are five and we've already had investment in pods and now we're dry now we're uh hot and then we're aborting those pods and then we've lost that and investment in flowers is, is minimal and so uh, again we do have a wide range water that comes back around r3 to r4 and maintain yeah we're in a good place and i go back to a field that was compacted down those years ago that uh, the leaf temperature was that 100 plus but those the rest of the field that had taproot down in it wasn't even irrigated taproot down in soil moisture 86 degrees on point so right yeah we've got a lot of flexibility are there any diseases beginning to show in soybeans yet uh no no major ones i mean you think about this bloom period uh the the only disease that really comes to mind as an issue during the blooming would be uh, white mold and we're nowhere near environmental conditions are good for that right i mean we're too hot we're not not wet enough um so haven't really seen any of those issues, had some of the early seedling diseases that might have had a, a few issues with stand. But as far as what we've got now and development into, uh, you know, further development, uh, frog eye leaf spot really hasn't been showing up. Normally we think about that coming in, you know, end of the month, early August. You're listening to Purdue Crop Chat with Bob Nielsen, Sean Castile, and your host, Eric Pfeiffer. I heard Bob mention that he thinks yields are going to be somewhere around average to maybe a little bit better. What was your prediction, Sean? Oh, my yields will be better than his yields. <laughs> As it stands right now, I mean, we do. We've got a good-looking crop. We've got a few stresses here and there, but you know, I think uh, I think he put it in his weasel way. Trend yields are a little bit higher. I mean, that, I think that's easily attainable, but as the wise old man across the street here says, you know, it's not done until it's in the bin and it's not done until the end of the season. So we've got a lot of season left that can make or break it. But it is, but we can't agree that compared to how we were feeling last year at this time. Oh yeah. We are, we are light years ahead of, of the mindset and, and the crop quality and condition that we were a year ago. And of course that's what so many people are remembering. And, you know, we're not, I think anywhere close to a 2018 uh, in terms of quality. Uh, but again, I, you know, at this point in time, knock on wood, we yes, we had a rough start. We had, uh, you know, the cold May, we had the cold snaps, we had excessive rain early, but given all that, the crop is still at least the corn crop. Well, both crops are at 60% good. To excellent. Uh, you know, we, we really can't complain too much. I think at this point in time. Yeah. And I think we both can agree if we've got enough moisture early just to have maintained the plant, right? That's kind of where I'm at. I don't want to excessive or I don't want it to be a luxury consumption of that water and then have a, a shallow rooting system. So I think, you know, these warmer temperatures, kind of dry pockets, catch a rain here and there to keep it alive, so to speak, uh, is really a good setup for us as we go into reproductive phases that come in later July, August. Right. Now, I want to switch gears here just a little bit. We've talked about the crop and the conditions, but I, I mentioned a little while ago that both of you have had your drones out, and we, we do like to talk about these. They're not just toys. They are productive tools. But I know Oh, come on. Have you seen Bob fly? These are toys for him. Come on. <laughs> I know a lot of farmers that have a drone sitting in their office 
that they're not quite sure what to do with other than they fly it around and they look around. So, Bob, I'll, I'll start with you. When you are flying your drone uh, at, at this particular time of year, what is it that you're looking for and what is it that it's going to help you with? Well, there's, there's two things. One is research-related, one is crop scouting. So from the research perspective, we're simply flying these planned missions over the field to get uh, what are called these, these stitched uh, images of the entire field. That's as much for research purposes as, any, as anything else, to see whether we can detect treatment effects, in other words, from the crop reflectance. But every time I go out flying, I'm, I also go flying manually. Uh, and basically, I'm using that drone as a crop scouting tool. I'm looking for early season. I'm looking for planter skips. I'm looking for uh, you know maybe individual rows of a planter that don't look right, individual rows of a nitrogen applicator that wasn't putting out what it should have been, looking for issues on a field basis that, uh, well, first of all, may impact our research, but just as importantly, may impact the crop. So for me, uh, especially the simple drones, the, the ones that you can fold up and put in a backpack and, and have them up in the air in 10 minutes once you get to a field, for me, they are extremely useful crop scouting tools uh, and allows me to pinpoint areas that, that, you know, once I'm done flying, and of course, you know, you're watching it on your, on your smart device as you're flying, and you can see it, uh, these bad areas on the screen. And so that tells me, okay, once the, once the drone lands, well, I'm going to walk out to that particular area uh, and try to figure out what's going on in that area. So instead of maybe literally walking the whole field myself, I let the drone walk the field in effect. And then I go to the specific problem areas that the drone is showing me. So I, I just think they're tremendous crop, crop scouting tools that maybe maybe people just don't take as much advantage of. And 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 they maybe they think that it's only us researchers that can make use of them, uh, and that's simply not true. But Sean, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, one of the big things that we've been looking at it on the front half of the season is to assess the stand. It's not saying that we're going to do stand counts with these these bad boys. You know, trying to run a forty to eighty acre field, hundred twenty acre field, you just flat can't do it to that level of detail. But to understand okay, what's the overall uh, coverage? And what I'm thinking about coverage is uh, leaf coverage, canopy coverage. And so to say, what's a weak area? What's a good area? So a very similar way that you're talking about. The easiest way is to, to do a, you know, a stitch flight or the pattern flight and then come back to look at those and then zoom in on those particular areas. But if you want to kind of do it in the heat of the moment, uh, you're at the field, um, you know, maybe a little bit more advanced. You know, think about early V V C to V two. That's pretty hard to fly that and and really see exactly what's going on. But now, into the latter part of June, into July, uh, doing the the manual flight as you described, just going up bird's eye view and just seeing patterns. That's that's one of the biggest yep. things that I want to look at. You can get it with a, a planned flight, but if you want to catch it then and there and to have targeted uh, scouting as you described, is to just go up, get that kind of oblique position and just see what pattern do I see across that field? A quick shot or two will get that. And patterns can be anything from the tire tires from the sprayer the applicator, right? It can be a neighbor or something coming across the field from a neighbor. It's like, okay, there might be some issues with the drift I need to go look at. That's not very apparent when you're on the ground. You know, I think you have well, talked and about- That's a key point. That's a key point you just made, Sean, that it's often not apparent from the ground. And, and so yep. much about crop diagnostics 
involves patterns. And that to me is probably one of the strongest benefits that this drone has given me is to see these patterns. Uh, because, yep. you know, how often have you and I both, we've been on the ground and say, man, we think there's a pattern. Well, yep. Let's count rows. Let's, oh, we think it's there. Once you're up in the air, they just stand out. And, and again, it's man-made, it's natural. It's, you know, the whole key is that pattern. You're exactly right. And with that, you can catch it in a manual flight. So when we say manual, for those that don't know, you just go up, you fly, you look at your little iPad and or phone, whatever you got to view it and, and, and take the pictures and see it or that planned flight. What I like about the planned flight in those kind of situations is then you can go back, you name your software, cloud-based software, whatever that you're using to stitch it, you catch the pattern, then you can start to measure. So, oh, this is on an every 90-foot pattern. Okay, that matches up with my sprayer, or it's a 40-foot issue. Okay, that matches up with my planter, or something like that. Um, So I think that's a big part of it. catching patterns what i also like about this is that you can do it now and i'm a big fan late season on the soybeans in particular because they tell you so much about that field variability that a, a soil test that's taken on even a half acre if you get crazy won't tell you and i'm talking about soil physiochemical so water supply nutrients all of that you catch the flight later in the season as a crop starting to senesce you can really pinpoint issues across that field, the good, the bad, the ugly, that are often going to just be masked with a yield monitor because we're going out there 30 to 40 foot swaths. And so the we're not as granular anymore. We're pretty coarse. So I like having that level of precision to figure it out. So that's both now as well as we go to the end of the season. Well, and, and the other point we should make, Eric, is that you know people often uh, uh, complain about the fact that, boy, you can't fly very far on a battery. Uh, and that's true when you're flying these planned autonomous flights. But if you're just flying manually on your own using the joysticks, you can cover an 80 acre field in probably five or 10 minutes. And, and you can cover a lot of acres per day if all you're doing is flying manually and quickly scouting, flying the field and taking pictures as you're doing it. But you can cover a lot of ground. And I just think there's a mistaken notion out there that, oh, we just can't cover enough acres with this with these small drones. And that just isn't true if you're flying manually. And, and I think uh, you know, the more people understand that, the more they'll see the utility of these as these just simple crop scouting tools that really add to the toolbox. Well, and I think one thing to make clear with when you're flying manually, yes, you've got the kind of active video feed, whether you're taking pictures or video. I personally don't like to, I mean, I'll look at it, but I'm not going to just zoom the whole field, looking that in motion, right? I'm going to go to a spot and then just go around 180 degrees, 360 degrees in those oblique positions. And like, oh, that's a spot I just flew over that I need to go back. But I've got my four quadrants, maybe the center of the field, and then I'm done. Yeah. So, and at 400 now, a lot feet, of utility there. At 400 feet at an oblique angle, you can see a lot of field. Yep. It has to be better than just looking at it from, through your windshield of your truck or yes. just walking around. So That's right. As we wrap up the Purdue Crop Chat podcast, Bob, any final thoughts you have for growers? Just pay attention to the next couple of weeks. And, and if you've got concerns about pollination, walk your fields and, and, and just take a closer look. And Sean? Yeah, I think one thing I'd really like to encourage growers to get out and do is taking leaf samples to assess nutrient deficiencies just to have that. We're coming into R2 to R3. That's a great stage to have a snapshot 
Um, what I like about that is in particular, if they're curious about what's going on in these field edges with the potassium deficiency or um, it's not every field, but we're seeing the sulfur deficiencies popping again because we've got reference strips out. So um, just document that. And, and when you do that or your consultant goes out to do that, uh, just be aware of the field condition. And what I mean by that is if we're this hot dry and we're taking leaf samples in the afternoon when the leaves of the soybeans are already curled over showing that underneath side, that's not going to be the best kind of nutrient snapshot. You want to make sure that the the crop is as healthy as possible, even under these hot conditions. So that's that's the thing I'd like people to look out for. Dr. Bob Nielsen, Dr. Sean Castile, thank you for another Purdue Crop Chat podcast. You're welcome. Thanks, Eric. This has been Purdue Crop Chat, a regular series featuring Purdue Extension's Dr. Bob Nielsen and Dr. Sean Castile. This episode moderated by Hoosier Ag Today's Eric Pfeiffer. I'm Andy Eubank for Purdue Crop Chat, a service of Purdue University Extension. And who's your ag today? Timely, relevant, credible.